Food insecurity is defined by not knowing where your next meal is coming from. And yet, while food insecurity is a reality for 30% of the US population, some 100 million people, nearly half of the food we produce in this country is thrown away. How can that be? And what can be done about it? We're speaking with an expert on food waste today and introduce you to an organization that has not just solved this issue, but created a true win-win-win scenario for all parties involved in doing so. Food, not waste. A brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance. That's our topic here today on An Organic Conversation, your show on everything that makes life worth living. I'm Helge Helberg. About 40% of our food here in the United States is wasted. Cooked food, leftover food, foods that reached or are close to their expiration date. Some experts believe that number is actually even higher. We are talking about all the food that is taken out of the supply chain due to packaging issue or mislabeling, food that is close to its expiration date, prepared food that didn't get eaten and at the end of the day needs to be disposed and so on. Even on a farm, up to 25% of what is grown may not even leave the farm because it can't be sold due to slight cosmetic blemishes, making it not 100% fit for a highly restricted food market where specific colors, sizes, and shapes are required. How can we change that system? Or rather, what does a perfect solution to the crisis of food waste look like? We will hear about it today. Food, not waste, a brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance. All that and more coming up in just a minute here today on An Organic Conversation. I'm Helge Helberg, your host. This show is brought to you by Bare Belly Organics, offering a complete line of natural sunscreens and organic skincare for children and adults, and even baby-safe creams and sunscreens. Bearbilly Organics uses natural minerals and organic ingredients and never harmful chemicals. Handmade sunscreens and organic skincare at barebellyorganics.com. In celebration of the 2017 Great American Solar Eclipse, Fry Vineyards, in collaboration with GreatAmericanEclipse.com, are proud to bring you a very limited supply of special releases such as Umbra Organic Zinfandel, Umbra Organic Chardonnay, and Totality, their first organic sparkling wine, to celebrate the solar eclipse on August 21st. Toast the cosmos in style. Frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. And by Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, 
tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. That's equalexchange.coop. And by Adderley, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Each garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. That's U-T-T-E-R-L-Y dot C-O. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I am Helge Helberg. Food, not waste. A brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance. That's our topic in this hour. And on the phone with me now is Komal Ahmed, the CEO and founder of Copia. That's gocopia.com, G-O-C-O-P-I-A, who's joining me today out of her office in San Francisco, I hope. Komal, do we have you on the line? Good morning. Thank you so much for joining us. Can you give us a framework before we dive into what you've created of the access food problem? What's happening in our culture, in our offices, grocery stores every day? How much food is wasted? I was saying in my intro, up to 40% or nearly half. And you are focused on the San Francisco area, even on a city level, even though this, this overabundance is happening nationwide. But can you give us an example of a city like San Francisco of what's happening every day? Sure, yeah. Imagine the world's largest football stadium filled to its absolute brim with perfectly edible food. That's how much food goes wasted every single day in America. And that's not last night's pad thai or this morning's hacking croissant, but untouched, unopened, amazing food. And, you know, we're, that is over 40%. And so what's happening, I think, and we can, I don't know if you want to jump into the policy changes that are happening or also the paradox of this problem. More really of the picture, when you say a football stadium that's in the U.S., wh what is that food? Where is it coming from? What, are, what would you be looking at? The most waste happens actually in uh, households, but that's not really where we're targeting because it's very spread out. It's very difficult to get to. So, like, imagine if every time you go to the grocery store, you have four bags of grocery. Imagine leaving one of them behind. That is like essentially what is happening in our homes every day. Meaning what, 25% of, of food yes. is? 25 to 30% within our own home. What is that? Um, like a, a liter of spoiled milk or vegetables that are forgotten in the crisper? Or where? Wh yeah, what, what does that look meat, like? Milk, all of the above. And those things just spoil? We forget about they, them? or? Yeah, they can spoil. I mean, I think really, in, and I'm not positive on how, what segment of what food is happening in the household but i do know that for businesses quite a bit of it is you know is ex it's the pursuit of perfection for you know produce it is the excess necessity for god forbid if you know food runs out at a wedding or a conference or you know your lunch for that day it's all of that it's when you're ordering food for your at your company uh, for 50 people but something happens and only 30 show up 
or, you know, there's, there's just so much inconsistency and you really don't know. I mean, and, and like you, you learn really interesting things, I think, about surplus food. So, for instance, you know, we work with Stanford Hospital. So when it's raining outside, more people get in car accidents, more people get in car accidents, more people are in the hospital, more people are in the hospital, more food is consumed, therefore less food is wasted. And so you can see these kinds of trends that are happening. And how does weather actually affect food consumption, food production, food you know, reallocation, like how, how do all of these different um, components actually come into figuring out how to purchase better, how to, and, and that's really where we're also tying into our technology and how it's, how it's helping to solve that problem. Great. That yes. And we want to dive into that in a second. For a city like San Francisco, we have about 800,000 people living there. It's a fairly small city that many people don't know that it is that small, but still there's, it's a food culture to begin with. But what does that translate this football stadium of wasted food in the country every day, every day? Uh, what does that translate to on a city level, for example, San Francisco, where you work in? I mean, a, a guesstimate, a good guesstimate would be a pound a person per day. So, you know, over 800,000 pounds a day is probably what we're wasting. On the flip side of this enormous amount of food being wasted, how many people live in food insecurity? The latest numbers I saw were about 30%, about 100 million people in the country. What, again, would that translate down to a, a city like San Francisco? Yeah, so it's, it's one in six. You know, depending on how you're going to calculate food insecurity, it's 50 million Americans that go without inconsistent access to food uh, every day. In the wealthiest country in the world, every day, 50 million people don't know where their next meal is coming from. And so really, it's this type of paradox that's happening, right? The, the excess on one side of the street and the need and the lack of access on the other. So with, with all of this excess, you know, this, we, we say we're solving the world's dumbest problem because in a world with so much abundance, so much technology innovation, how do issues like hunger still exist? Especially when we're wasting, frankly, three times as much food as there are mouths to feed. So it's not a lack of food that's the issue. It's just the ineffective distribution of this food. So hunger is not a scarcity problem. It's a logistics problem. Which we always said when it comes to you know hunger in other countries. Um, in Africa, right. we said it's always a, the problem is distribution and democracy because there is enough food in the world produced. Mm -hmm. I don't think people at that moment were thinking about already processed foods or packaged foods. It was really mm -hmm. more the growing, the agricultural mm -hmm. part. You're now bringing this down to a city level. And you're listening to an organic conversation. I'm Helga Helberg, and I'm speaking with Komal Ahmed, the CEO and founder of Copia out of San Francisco. That's GoCopia with a C, gocopia.com. Let's talk about that. You founded Copia to solve this problem uh, focused right now on San Francisco, but really adoptable to basically any city, not just in the U.S. And you are using all the recent developments, technology, even driver services to tackle it. Tell us about Copia. How did you come up with that to begin with? Yeah, um, so I came up with Copia over five years ago when I was a student at Berkeley, and I encountered a homeless man. I was walking down Telegraph Avenue, and I encountered a homeless man begging for food. And usually, you know, they're begging for money, but this guy was begging for food, and I was like, you know, why don't you come with me um, and join me for lunch? And he agreed, and he sat across from me during lunch just scarfing down his food. So he was unbelievably hungry. It wasn't like a ploy for anything else that he wanted from me, and in between bites, he shared a story. He said, my name is John. I just came back from my second tour in Iraq. I've been waiting weeks for my military benefits to kick in. And because they haven't, you know, I haven't eaten in three days. 
And that really hit home for me. I mean, this is doesn't matter what your politics are, right? This is a veteran, someone who had given the most selfless sacrifice for our country, only to come home to face yet another battle, which was of hunger and homelessness. And then adding insult to injury right across the street, Berkeley's dining hall was throwing away thousands of pounds of perfectly edible food. And that's this very stark reality of those who have and waste and those who are need and starve and those two people right across the street from one another. And, you know, I re- realize this is an emblematic, much larger problem, and that is that we waste three times as much food as their amounts to feed. And in order to solve it, I, you know, after I met with John, the veteran, I marched right up to our dining hall managers and I asked them, like, what do they do with their excess food? And they said, well, we try not to have any. And I was like, okay, well, how often does that actually work out for you? And, you know, after a lot of them trying to avert the subject, me continuing to push and prod, they admitted that, yes, they do have excess, but they have to throw it away. And so I asked the obvious question, you know, why would you throw it away when you go right across the street in people's park and donate it? And they said, because of liability, we don't do that. Yeah, you know, homeless people's high-powered attorneys are standing by just to sue you. It was such a ridiculous excuse. You were going to sell this to us 10 minutes ago at full price. 10 minutes ago was good enough for us to eat, and now it's not good enough for people who are actually in need to consume. And I wasn't going to take that for an answer because I thought it was ridiculous. And so I, I did some research, and I discovered that Congress had passed in 1996 the Bill Emerson Good Samaritan Act. And it protects all donors, regardless of whether you're a corporation, organization, or individual, from any liability. And I also discovered that in the last 20 years, the number of lawsuits that have been passed against any business or individual has been zero. So, you know, your second cousin twice removes uncle's hotel that shut down because they donated food. So it just doesn't exist. But everyone has a story about something like that. And so I printed all of this out. I took it to the executive director of our dining hall. And I said, I want to start a donation program. Here's all the protection. Here's I'm going to do it. And he probably just wanted to get me out of his office. (laughs) So within less than 10 minutes. He agreed, and we started one of the nation's first food recovery organizations on a college campus, essentially a student-powered food recovery movement. We're recovering food from our dining halls, our on-campus events, our stadium, our arena, redistributing it directly to feed our community in need. And it was a great start, you know, an idea I completely fell in love with. Uh, but, you know, like the most who've fallen in love, you, you greatly underestimate how challenging it'll actually be. And so, you know, one day I'm sitting in class and our dining hall manager calls me and he says, hey, Komal, you know, no one came to this event. So we have 500 gourmet sandwiches left over. They need to be picked up in two hours. Otherwise, <laughs> we're going to have to throw them away. We need the fridge space. Sure. Do you want them? And I was like, yeah, I want them. So I, you know, I grabbed my bag. I dashed across campus. I jump into a zip car, go through all the one-way streets up to our loading dock, begin loading all of this food into the car by myself. And this is perishable food, so it needs to move as quickly as possible. So I'm blasting the AC while I'm frantically trying to get all this food in. And then finally I do, and I slam the trunk, and I'm like, phew, like, thank God this is amazing food. Of course there's going to be nonprofits that want it. And so then I proceed to call 30-plus nonprofits in Berkeley and Oakland, even as far as Richmond, a third of them don't answer the phone. A third of them say, no, we're okay for today. We don't need any more food, thanks. And then the last third are like, yeah, you know, actually we could use 10 sandwiches or 15 sandwiches. I'm like, awesome. Now I have 475 sandwiches. And I'm literally on the side of the road so frustrated. Like, Why is it so hard to do a good thing? Why is it so hard to do the right thing? And where are all the hungry people at when I actually have amazing food? And so I'm you know, I'm trying to extend my Zipcar reservation because I still have 475 sandwiches in my trunk and I can't because someone has already booked it. And I was like, wow, this is Murphy's Law in action. Um, it's fine. The next person is going to pop one in the trunk. They're going to have 475 sandwiches. That's fine. Um, but I remember thinking, you know, how much more effective and efficient this entire process would be if those who have food could say, hey, we have food. And those in need of food could say, hey, we could use that food. And we could match these two people, clear the marketplace and create clear value for both of them. 
And so that's what we started by building. You know, but what, what happened? What happened with the four hundred seventy-five sandwiches you still had in your car? <laughs> <laughs> I, I went to, actually went to a park and, and delivered, literally hand delivered them to people. Not totally scalable <laughs> or safe, but you know, it had so, happened. <laughs> so, so we are not even talking. You know, the the sandwich that has been bitten into three times no, that has the really left. Not. This is this is basically untouched, or is this entirely untouched food? Pristine, yep. as you said, 10 minutes earlier before the store closed, it would have been sold for $10 a plate. And now at the end of the day, they just cooked too much. They couldn't sell it all. That is being thrown away. So we're not even adding the food that we eat half, right? The pizza that we right. only eat no, half no. and then that goes back that actually gets really thrown away and hopefully gets composted or uh, ends up in a, in a program in San Francisco here where they make soil out of it. But this is untouched food. This is a safe untouched food and wow what a waste if that is being thrown away in addition so just to reset again i'm speaking with uh, the very passionate komal amat the ceo and founder of copia that's gocopia.com in this hour of an organic conversation food not waste a brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance and What came out of that? What what have you found as the, the key pillars of your organization that were already in place that just needed to be connected? Yeah, so I think that right now is the time more than ever to solve food waste, right? This has become a you know, much more larger social issue. You know, the Pope is like, the Pope is behind it. You know, President Obama was behind it. USDA, EPA have established a 50% reduction goal by 2030, and then now state and city governments across the country and world are rolling out aggressive zero-waste targets, food recovery mandates, and associated penalties. As a quick example, I mean, France has banned food waste, um, and it's not like a slap on the wrist. It's a $80,000 fine punishable by two years in jail for grocery stores that don't donate their food. And, you know, I, I don't know if that's something like that's going to be implemented in the U.S., but there are there are becoming more and more commitments because this has an actual ramification, serious ramifications on our environment. Uh, if food waste were a country, it would be the third largest emitter of methane behind the U.S. and China. So it is, it's a significant toll. Is that the driving force? Just bef before we dive into really what how Copia found this brilliant solution to do it, let's talk about it. Why is there an, a national or international Western world awareness on that scale and that um, I know food food reduction laws, the food reduction or waste laws, re, uh, waste reduction is important in everyone's mind. Is the is methane is is global warming the engine behind that or injustice? What is it for you if you look at the international landscape of why is food waste all of a sudden to yeah. a total topic? So yeah, so it's, it's difficult to say, especially given our current national landscape. Why do people care? But I think uh, on an international and you know previous administration level, it is, of course, this is a significant contributor to global warming. It's a significant, it's a very, it's a poisonous gas, 25 times as more poisonous as carbon dioxide. Like this, methane is, is serious and it has serious ramifications. And it's also, it's also just a wasted resource, right? Think about how much time, money, energy, backbreaking labor went into, um, you know, planting the, the food, picking the food, sorting the food, cleaning the food, you know, selling the food. But it, there's there's so much along the way, and I think that it's really coming to people's awareness that uh, the amount of sheer waste that's happening, and I think the paradox that's now becoming more and more apparent, even in the wealthiest country in the world, where one in six don't know where their next meal is coming from. So I think that 
this diametric opposition is really what is becoming uh, is, is more and more heightened. And I think that food waste in general is like the sustainability, sexy sustainability issue of the day. Interesting that an environmental, I mean, there's a, there's a social injustice, obviously, completely at the center of this. Mm-hmm. And often, though, social injustices don't become an international movement or into international mm-hmm. awareness. Uh, overnight, it seems like within just a few last years. So that in this case, it's the mix of environmental impact and methane and global warming and bringing out this social injustice that could absolutely be avoided. But those two combined just makes it a powerful topic, of course. Right. And then plus, it's a sustainable development goal. So it has been established on a on a global front as something that needs to be both the eradication of hunger, but also reducing food waste. Amazing. We do want to talk about the mechanics and copia specifically right after the break. We'll take a quick break to honor our underwriters. But again, this is an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. Our topic is food, not waste. A brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance. And that brilliant solution is Go Copia. GoCopia.com. And we are speaking with the CEO and founder, Komal Ahmed who is joining us today from San Francisco. Come on, stay on the phone with us. We'll take a quick break. We'll write back with so much more. This show is brought to you by Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor of organic fruits and vegetables that has been sourcing solely organic produce for over 20 years. From grocery store to company cafeteria to caterers and personal chefs, anyone can buy from Earl's Organic. Certified organic produce at earlsorganic.com. And we're back here to an organic conversation. I'm Helge Helberg. I'm speaking with Komal Ahmed, the CEO and founder of Copia out of San Francisco, gocopia.com, in this hour of Food Not Waste, a brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance. Um, Komal, before the break, we talked about the international focus on food waste. And of course, this is not just a U.S. problem. France now prohibiting food waste, even with a with a fine, if you if you don't honor that. Germany food waste. It's a, the Western world's produce too much food and too much people are in hunger. Um, this is really a domestic problem. All of a sudden, the focus has become from hunger overseas to hunger within the Western world and the abundance right next to it, literally across the street. Copia. You are combining all these elements of technology, recent mobility uh, solutions that have been created, tax brackets. Can you tell us exactly how Copia works and and who you are involving? What are the stakeholders? Sure. Great. Yeah. 
So COVID is focused uh, primarily downstream. So where 90, $90 billion of food waste occurs. So, uh, you know, 85% occurring downstream at consumer-facing businesses and homes, and we're focusing on specifically food businesses because it's the largest addressable market. And there's a significant tax deduction opportunity. Um, and for our sake, you know, rapid scale uh, potential with key customers. And our customers are, you know, food management companies, grocery stores, hospitals, retailers, um, universities, stadiums, arenas, et cetera. So businesses that have food primarily 180 to 365 days a year. And the way that our technology works is that businesses create a a profile and they tell us they use our app to essentially schedule pickups. Um, so they'll say this is, you know, how much food we have. Um, this is if it's if it's just one time, it's just how much food do we have? We need to pick that by this time, and that's essentially it. In your credit card information. But for the ones that are like subscription customers, they'll set up a, a schedule. They'll say, I want pickups Monday, Wednesday, Friday. I don't necessarily know how much food I'm going to have access, but I know we're going to have something. And um, then all of this information is then, you know, tracked into our app, and our algorithm will then match that exact amount and type of food to the nearest nonprofit or nonprofits that could accept it at that day at that time. It'll dispatch one of our drivers um, who use our driver app to receive the most efficient route, and they'll be also able to help track the inventory in our system. And then it'll be delivered directly to the nonprofit that, you know, receives the food, they sign the tax receipt, um, you know, making it much more audit proof. And uh, as a full circle, we'll also send back photos and testimonials to the people that were fed, of the people that were fed back to the donor so they get to see the impact that they made by spending less than two minutes of their time essentially going copia. And uh, so it is, I mean, it's an entire marketplace. And uh, the the reason that customers, you know, I think there's a lot of free solutions out there uh, just for, for, you know, donating food perspective. Um, they're not necessarily 100% reliable or 100% efficient. And again, not technology-based. And so the reason where we see, you know, an opportunity, a, a mutual opportunity, a win-win-win for all parties is, you know, the top and bottom line benefits first that we offer our customers, right? So you save thousands by optimizing your purchasing and you're, you're reducing overproduction. Um, you're accessing significant enhanced tax deductions. So it's about a dollar per pound of food, which can be tens of thousands of dollars to tens of millions of dollars in terms of a tax write-off for you as a business. And then you reduce disposal costs. And so these costs will increase. You know, We have the city of San Francisco, uh, along with other cities, have subsidized the rate of composting or, or made it virtually free. But it's not free. It comes at a cost. And it's really expensive. So I think reducing those disposal costs as well. And then, you know, along with the top line benefits of being able to celebrate your environmental efforts internally and externally, improving your own customer base um, and engaging employees and customers with sustainability and community efforts, like showing the world that you actually care and that, you know, you believe what we believe. It's an amazing story because what's really clear is Copia is focused on food waste. It's not focused on feeding the hungry, that there are outlets already. You're not trying to reinvent the wheel. But the, a food bank has not mastered the process in which it receives its food. And that's where Copia comes in. So I just want to clarify a couple things on sure. any company, any business that touches food can sign up with you. Is there a fee that you charge for signing up or is that a free free not service? Not for signing up. No, mm-hmm. for creating an account, you're totally free to create an account. Um, the pickup fee... Uh, depending on volume is, you know, it's very small. It's like $25 for on demand um, for the larger volume. Right. And, but and, any uh, any caterer, any, any grocery store, any, any caterer, restaurant, any grocery store, any restaurant, right. any Google, any, you know, any Starbucks, any Whole Foods. And yeah. And then the the tax brackets or the the tax savings that you um, mentioned, it's about a dollar per pound. Is that in San Francisco or is that a U.S.? 
it's a federal tax deduction. Really? And this is also what makes food donating food so essentially lucrative, right? Because it's uh, it used to be that only C corps were getting federal tax deductions, enhanced tax deductions. Now it's S corps and LLC, so all food businesses. It used to be only 10% of your net income you could write off. Now it's 15% with that Delta five specifically for food donations and increase the carry forward for five years. So if you're not profitable or you somehow already hit that, right. you could still you know gain the benefits of that. So you know you're getting a 200. 200 times ROI by working with us because we're giving you access to this, all of this information, all of these receipts in a unified form, making it audit proof uh, and giving you money you would have otherwise left on the table or worse. Well, and, and worse because even even trash costs, uh, you yeah, know, however, exactly. however insignificant, but if you throw your food away, for the environment, it's methane when it ends up in a landfill. For you, it can feel good, but you would still need to pay for the trash can to be removed, right. filled with food. In this case, that gives you a tax break, and you know, it's a, yeah, you're right. It's a 200% increase in 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 the use of that that resource. All of a sudden, it turns from waste to resource. It inspires your employees. Hopefully, it's a good culture, but yeah. it actually saves you money. What cost you money right before just by signing right. up with Copia, and. Then the drivers. I know enough about Copia. I think you are. It's not your fleet of drivers, but you're using rideshares or or driver services, right? Such as, such as Uber or who are your sure, drivers? Yeah. So- um, actually, a lot of our drivers are previous recipients of copious food. They are previously homeless. They're veterans. The idea that it's not just a handout, but it's a hand up. We you know pervade, pay them above market uh, wages. So that's that's our driver fleet here in, in the San Francisco Bay Area. So we're operating 40 cities across the area. That's that's where our drivers. So this is I mean this is the way we think about it. Is this is our our lab, right? This is where we create our playbook. We try and understand how do different dynamics affect. Uh, food recovery. Right. So how does weather affect it? How does um, parking, you know, San Francisco, you can't park. But the distance between a nonprofit and for-profit is you know, one to three miles. It could take you 48 minutes to get there, but it's one to three miles. In San Jose, where you can park, the distance between a nonprofit you drop off food from and a for-profit where you pick it up from is seven to 12 miles. It'll take 30 minutes. Um, how, does, how does this operate in a hospital versus a stadium? How are the things different? How do we essentially create a playbook that we can then replicate? But first, we have to understand exactly what's going on before you just open it up and say, like, hello, just come and take our technology. Um, but now that we, we have and our, our technology is advancing so quickly, we've started building channel partnerships with other food recovery organizations and essentially providing them our technology to help scale their efforts. Because they don't have that kind of technology, whereas we've invested you know, hundreds of thousands of dollars and engineering hours into actually developing it. And so to be able to manage the customer, to be able to manage the driver, to be able to manage the nonprofit, we have a suite of technology, uh, a suite of software that we can offer every you know, moving part. And this then allows us to not necessarily have to put our boots on the ground in Peoria, Illinois, or Northwest Arkansas, or you know wherever, but rather use the local you know population, whether it's local population of volunteers that work for the nonprofit organization or or their own paid drivers. But how do we make them more effective so that we can scale quicker? And so yes, you know our our mission is to reduce waste, but it's also to how do we recover food better? How do we do it more effectively? The more food we recover and the more effectively recover, the the better will uh, the better we'll be able to feed those who are most in need uh, with high quality food. So it is still about hunger eradication, but the better we get at this side of it is the more is what will enable us to be able to help the other side of it. And even though you are 
this sounds all like a non like an amazing nonprofit. You are not a nonprofit, right? You're you decided to make it a technology company, really. So you're a pro profit. You're solving a a problem with all the resources of a pro profit and with the mindset of a nonprofit. How do you how would you define that? Yeah, I mean, I think we're uh, not necessarily the mindset of a nonprofit, but more of a mission driven. We are a mission driven right. company, but we are. I mean, the way that we win is is also by what I love about Topia, and this is not because I found it, is because nobody loses when we win, right? So when we recover more food from a customer, um, we feed more people. When we feed more people, they get a larger tax deduction, you know, which we then get a percentage of. So, and, you know, when we get more customers and we feed more people, our investors are happier. So there's, like, everyone is winning here. The, the customer also saves money. They look better. The nonprofit gets higher quality of food, more diverse, and larger access to more nonprofits we can feed more people. So I think that that's, that's really this great virtuous circle that we have. Um, it just so happens that we, we feed people to at the end of it. I know you have recovered nearly or already over a million pounds of food in San Francisco alone. How much money have you saved companies uh, that, are, that have been working with the organization, roughly? Yeah, we've saved them over five and a half million dollars, roughly. So why would not every company sign up? Or in other words, if you looked at the growth of Copia, what do you need the most? More hungry people, more companies to sign up, <laughs> more nonprofits? What's the, where does the growth lie the most? Yeah, so I think what we'll need is more, I mean, we don't, as a society, we don't need any more hungry people. No, there was I think there's going to be, yes. yeah, yeah, I think that there's <laughs> going to be very interesting laws that are going to be changing. Um, you know, there's a, I think it's a hundred and thirty plus billion dollar cut that they're trying to do in food programs. Um, this administration is trying to do with food programs. So SNAP, cutting SNAP, cutting yes. the Meals on Wheels, et cetera, et cetera. So th that can also dramatically increase the 50 million Americans that go hungry um, exponentially. So that's not necessarily what we want to happen, but we are preparing for that reality. And so what we need is definitely more customers, of course, but also more like-minded. We, we, we don't necessarily, as, as you know very well, you don't want to necessarily do business with everyone who wants to do business with you, but people who believe what you believe, right? The people who are knowing that they're not giving us crappy food, that they have this high-quality food that they will package, that they will give away, that they will also um, get to see the benefits of. And you customers know, so in, this, in this case means um, food businesses? So food business, so it would be like Airmark, it would be Google's, it would be Eurus, it would be hotels, it would be Sodexo, you know, uh, Bon Appetit, uh, more more universities. So we have Berkeley with Stanford. Like, how do we get other universities? It's um, more hospitals, you know, Kaiser, so, Health. So let me ask you, why why would Google or why would not anyone want to work with you? It seems like a perfect solution to a gigantic problem, as you said. Everyone wins. Mm -hmm. What are what are the the the, the hold up? Upstick, yeah, the obstacles. Yeah, so some of them are, I mean, a lot of it is education, right? So 90% of the reason why businesses don't donate food is one, is fear of liability, two, is transportation constraints, and three, is not knowing that you can or where you can or how you can. All three so, you are so, addressing, all, right? Yeah, all three we're addressing. Um, but we're one company trying to address very this, this stigma that, you know, we're a very litigious society, and so to try and overcome that is still, it's still an ordeal. Then also then going to the businesses and First, you got to admit you got a problem, right? So there's definitely companies still that are like, nope, we don't waste food. We, you know, we consume everything. We re, uh, we reportion it. We take yesterday's chicken, put it in today's soup, and and some some companies are really good at that. But everybody has waste, and it's not that we're trying to slap you on the wrist because you have waste. We're saying 
you have waste. Now, what can we do to, to unlock the value in it? Just because it's surplus doesn't mean that there's no value in it. How do we unlock this value, not just to give you financial savings back, but also give people a really high-quality meal that they're in need of? And so I think it's also, so for companies, it's, it's them not understanding the entire value proposition for themselves. So first, not admitting that they have excess, and then understanding the value proposition in terms of, wow, like we could save a lot of money in our disposal costs, or you know, we could reduce our tax, um, you know, our taxable income by X percentage, and, and this is a cash benefit we're getting. So I think that's also part of it, is how do we make this, uh, once we do talk to the, once we talk to the customer, they get it. But it's about getting the right buyer too, and there's so many different components. And of course, every every sale, there's some people you have to talk to sustainability manager, other people's facilities, other people it's um, the CFO, the CEO, head of marketing. There's just there's so many different buyers sure. and, and so many different stakeholders that you obviously have to appease. We're almost out of time, but what are your next plans? Uh, expand to, into other cities? You said you're, you know this is your playbook, and once that's really figure it out and you feel it's it's ready this is a national solution if not an international one do you have any way for people to get involved like you know we have we listen to in 135 countries three million listeners if mm -hmm. if people wanted to support this of course go copia g-o-c-o-p-i-a gocopia.com is the website but if they were fascinated uh, with this concept what would you hope people would do I would hope that one, people now know they're empowered with the knowledge that food is one too good to be wasted and that it no longer needs to be. Uh, and that, you know, it is, I'm just one woman. I wasn't supposed to do this, you know, and, and I was supposed to be a Navy doctor and I decided that this was a problem worth solving. So every one of us has uh, a way to be part of the solution. And so whether it's you signing up your business, telling businesses to sign up, um, dropping us a line to say you want to help do a channel partnership, you want to be a food recovery organization that needs to use your technology, you want to help expand it across the country and other countries, you know, I think definitely reaching out with a substantial way to move forward would be great. So if you have a company even in another city already and that they want to establish this, uh, you would somehow help them even if it's on the East Coast or somewhere else in the country? Yeah, so we're already expanding, right? Because this is technology, so that helps yeah. us scale much quicker. So now with our new strategy that we're rolling out, we will be able to expand to cities across America um, very, very uh, quickly. So we are in Northwest Arkansas, we'll be launching Austin, LA, um, and so on and so forth. So wherever we see that there's a really solid demand and there's a solid concentration of businesses, nonprofits, and like champions, you know, evangelists, then We're, we want to go there. We're ready to go there. Amazing. Thank you so much. That's food, not waste. Definitely not waste. A brilliant solution, really a win-win-win, to the problem of overabundance. And again, that's Komal Ahmed, the CEO and founder of Copia. GoCopia.com, who joined us today from San Francisco, California. I wish you the absolute best of luck for all of us. And may this be a national, if not international, program very quickly. Uh, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you so much. Great work. Thanks, Kamal. Talk soon. Thanks. Bye. And we are staying with the topic of food. Organic food, in this case, from the fields, the update from the produce dock of what you will find in the grocery store, how to pick it, how to select it, how to store it at home and what to do with it, the consumer segment with Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce. Here is What's in Season. Music 
And with me on the phone now is, no, it's not Earl Herrick of Earl's Organic Produce, but again, Rodrigo Velasquez, one of his expert buyers at Earl's, and all his buyers have very specific areas of produce that they are experts in, and I hope we have him on the phone. Rodrigo, are you with us? Hi, Helga. Yes, I'm here. <laughs> Thank you for making time. It's summer, it's hot, and what is your main focus right now as a buyer? Well, we're seeing finally the melon season in full swing. Mm -hmm. Not only the cantaloupes and the honeydews that everybody likes, but we are uh, very happy to see the many growers are putting out some excellent varietals of uh, melons that we have not seen in the past in uh, this abundance. And uh, also, you know, very happy that now we are into what is considered the main uh, season for melons. We are we left behind the California desert, and now we are completely in the Central Valley. Uh, wow. San Joaquin Valley and Sacramento Valley Uh, which produces the best eating melons of the season. So basically, melons, you know, they for the most part they grow at night. In, uh, and 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 if you have the cold night, allows for the sugar to accumulate during that that night. Nice. When you talk about different varieties that you haven't seen or maybe never seen before, it's so interesting that the the trend, unfortunately, still goes or in many many produce areas goes to good for shipping, now finally maybe good for flavor as well, but many varieties have been simplified or reduced to just, you know, a handful of commercially available varieties. It sounds like with melon, melons are really bucking the trend and you're seeing more varieties than you may have ever seen in a long time. What names are, are flying out there right now that people might see in their store? Absolutely. So some of the melons you're going to see besides the honeydews and uh, the ubiquitous cantaloupes, are going to be a galia, which is uh, more similar to a cantaloupe, and similar to a honeydew, uh, orange flesh honeydew, which is an absolutely beautiful melon. Mm -hmm. And then we will, uh, you know, if you're lucky, maybe uh, you will encounter one of the French varieties that is becoming very popular in California, which is the Charente, Charente melon which is small in size, but big in flavor. You call it fresh variety? A French. Oh, French, French, French. French. Gotcha, yes. Mm -hmm. So they're really, why are they a French variety? They, the, the Charente? Yeah, the Charente melon, is, uh, it comes from France. Really? Uh, huh. it, it, was a, it was a melon that was in, you know, very popular there for uh, many, many years, more than more 100 years. Uh, and uh, it, it's, it's originated from the... Um, Charente region in France. Beautiful. How do you pick a melon? A melon is one of those rare items where we always say, you know, with Earl, we say, ask your produce guy if you can try one, if it's a strawberry or a few blueberries before you buy it. Because, it's, you know, if, if they are not really, really good and you're disappointed, uh, strawberries, blueberries, three, four, five dollars, a little plastic, uh, you know, container, it's just, it's just a waste of money. With melons, if they don't sample them, which some stores do, but if they don't, you don't really know what you're getting. How do you pick a different melon, maybe honeydew versus watermelon or whatever differentiator you need to throw in there now for people to not lose money? Okay, now let me start by, for instance, on the knitted melons. And let me use the cantaloupes and the galias, an example of knitted melons. A good way to find one is 
you want a very clear, uh, first of all, it has to be firm. You, you all the time, all varieties of melons, across all varieties, you want it to be firm. That's an indication of freshness. Uh, remember, melons don't ripen after harvest. It's like grapes. And uh, that's why you want something that is firm. And, is an indication of freshness. And you call Better them you call them netted varieties because they have that yeah. interesting skin on the outside that looks like they're still packaged in a little netting, right? They have these. That is correct. Yeah. yeah. So on them, uh, one of the things I look for when I go to you know the farmers market or uh -huh. store is a very thick netting, a very thick net uh, that is an indication of a healthy uh, melon that you know was able to fully developed, Mature, uh, yeah. all its flavor. Great. Uh, free of any imperfections, like uh, any any softness on the skin, you want to avoid that. Uh -huh. and, uh, and finally, don't smell them, because cantaloupes don't smell on the outside. Uh, you'll be disappointed if you smell them. And um, also something that I noticed is that uh, many times people look at the stem end And the newer varieties of cantaloupes, and we're seeing this on the Galias, uh, now they're they are cut with a knife rather than pull at time of harvest. So that will not be an indication, uh, unlike it was many years ago, uh, but go with the clear, very well-defined, thick netting. That would you, be for me. And you were, saying, you were saying with the stem end, uh, if it was dried up, That was an indicator a few years ago, or maybe even a couple of years ago, that it has been off the field for maybe too long. You wanted to have a clean cut, and it was f fully ripe, and it, it just fell off that vine, basically. And that's how you could tell. Now you're saying they're so cut closely that th that's no longer actually something to go by. That is correct. Now they, they are cut with a knife from the vine. Right. No, no, they're not full anymore. Usually you can... Uh, you can imagine that in the in the field, uh, the larger size melons are closer to the plant, and they have more sugar than the smaller size oh, melons. Oh, that's so that are good to know. <laughs> that's great to know. So bigger, big netting, and and heavy for its size. And how about that's with non-netted skin and then the watermelons? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. So in the case of the honeydew, you know, there's a, there's a little, uh, I mean, the, the surface on the honeydew is very smooth, right? Yeah. But if you look closely, you see areas of the skin of the honeydew that has like a, a little netting, like the reminiscence of a netting. That is an indication of sugar presence, high sugar presence. Uh, next time you, you are in, a, you know, you have the opportunity to, to buy a honeydew, look at that, compare different pieces and find that one that has Kind of like a small spot where there's something reminiscent of an netting, and then of course go with uh, you know firm and uh, heavy for its weight. Great. How about watermelon? For watermelons, you know, I, there's there's one way that it works very well for me, and is uh, look for a watermelon that has uh, a big yellow spot. A big yellow spot means that the watermelon ripened on the field before harvest. If you don't see the big yellow spot and it's all, you know, green, uh, light and dark green all over, that means that maybe it was harvested too soon. So look for that, the big, big yellow, you want that, and a big, clear difference between the green, the light green and the dark green. If you say, you have those those two indications, it's better than the sound. You know, a lot. I think a lot of people, <laughs> yeah. you know, are looking for that, uh, you know, hollow sound, yes. uh, but it's not, not as reliable. 
uh, and again, you know, look for something that is firm. You don't want a soft watermelon. You want something that is firm, uh, that is, uh, you know, heavy for its weight. And then look for that beautiful yellow belly. Cool. You would think that you want to avoid that, but you actually want that. That's amazing. So we are we're almost out of time, but I do want, when you get them home, since they don't ripen, do you keep your melons in on the counter? Do you put them in the fridge? Do you always cut them up right away and then put them in the fridge? What's the best way of keeping them fresh? Absolutely. So one of the, if possible, give them a room temperature. Avoid to put your melons, cut all whole, in the refrigerator because it will absorb, it might absorb the smells of the other foods. Ah. So it, that's, it, and if you're going to eat it, Try to take it, I mean, if you absolutely have to put it on the refrigerator, uh, wrap it in paper, and then cover it with plastic. Those two two steps. If you absolutely, because sometimes you absolutely have to have it in the refrigerator, uh, let's say you want to keep it there for more than a week, well, wrap it in paper, and then in a plastic bag, and then you keep it there, and then take it out of your refrigerator at least one hour before you're going to eat it. Remember that fruit gets the best flavor at room temperature. Great. But on the counter, if it's in its beautiful own packaging, meaning in its skin and you haven't cut it into it, then four or five days, totally fine. It doesn't ripen. It doesn't get bad, really. It could sit at room temperature, maybe out of the sun on your counter, totally fine. And then when you cut into it, you know, maybe if you have leftover, put it in the fridge. But otherwise, counter sounds fine. It's better for honeydews and watermelons, cantaloupes they don't last that long uh, outside of refrigeration. So maybe cantaloupes one or two days, honeydews and, uh, and uh, watermelons, they can go five days to a week. Wow, and it's a great season, it sounds like. Yeah, this is it. It is. We had a bumpy start because of the below normal, above normal, below normal temperatures that we have to deal with. Totally. But now things are, are, are at its peak of, of flavor. You have such a wealth of knowledge, and it's so fun to talk with you every time. That's Rodrigo Velasquez, this time on melons, honeydew, and watermelons, and all the other varieties that we are seeing, maybe for the first time, or at least in real abundance this year, right now, at your grocery store. Um, otherwise, ask for it. Thank you so much, Rodrigo, and I can't wait to have you back soon at the end of maybe August, just to, to see what's coming in next. Thank you so much. Great. Great to have you. Thank you. Talk soon. Talk soon. Bye-bye. And that was a full hour all about food. Food, not waste. In both cases, a brilliant solution to the problem of overabundance, our main focus, and the consumer update from the produce stock, what's in season. I'm Helga Helberg. This is an organic conversation. Thank you so much for listening. We'll be back with another amazing episode next week. Talk to you then. And that was this week's edition of An Organic Conversation. Thank you so much for listening. A big thank you also to our associate producer, Kristen Ponger. An Organic Conversation is made possible through listeners like you and the fantastic support of our underwriters. Equal Exchange, a worker-owned cooperative that ensures your food is environmentally sound and socially just. Equal Exchange has been creating big change for small farmers for over 30 years by offering certified organic and fair trade coffee, tea, chocolate, bananas, and avocados. 
More on Equal Exchange at equalexchange.coop. And Utterly, offering beautiful and fun clothing for boys and girls that is made entirely from the unused fabric of prominent apparel manufacturers. Every garment reduces our eco-footprint by preventing this fabric from reaching the waste stream. Utterly, making sustainability fashionable and fashion sustainable. For more information, utterly.co. Also, Earl's Organic Produce, a national distributor providing certified organic fruits and vegetables for your store, home, or business. Are you a chef, have a catering business, or planning a party, or simply just love organic produce? Anyone can buy directly from Earl's Organic at wholesale prices. The website is earlsorganic.com. And Fry Vineyards, America's first certified organic winery, producing organic and certified biodynamic wine without synthetic sulfites or other preservatives. Family owned and operated since 1980. Fry Vineyards, Mendocino County award-winning wines. For more information, frywine.com. That's F-R-E-Y-W-I-N-E dot com. Lastly, thank you as well to Bowman College, focused on holistic nutrition and culinary arts for over 20 years. Bowman College offers professional training programs that prepare individuals for careers as nutrition consultants and natural chefs. Their website is bowmancollege.org. That's B-A-U-M-A-N college.org. If you missed parts of this show or for any other episode, go to anorganicconversation.com or subscribe to our show on iTunes, Stitcher, or Google Play so you'll never miss an episode. And for more information, health tips, recipes, and your daily dose of inspiration, find us on Facebook and Instagram at anorganicconversation and on Twitter at TalkOrganic. I'm Helge Helberg, and we'll be back with another great episode right here, same place, same time, next week. See you then.